take God's word, turn to James chapter 5. For those that are visiting, we've been navigating this book for several months, actually since last September. And for me, it's a bit saddening that this is it. The last two verses. I heard an I agree there. Good. (laughs) James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. It's very intriguing to me how James wraps this book up. And we'll get into that in a moment. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, you could put a her in there too. Let him or her know that whoever brings back a sinner from his or her wandering will save his or her soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Now, James has been telling us to grow up. So we can ask ourselves a series of questions that fit the context and everything that we have been going through. You can ask yourself, am I growing old or am I growing up? There's a difference. Amen? Am I choosing joy in the midst of my trials? Am I being more patient in life? How about, am I complaining less and praying more? Yeah, Kenny's clapping. All right. Do I find myself obeying God's word or do I merely study it? Are there any prejudices that shackle me? Am I controlling my tongue? And of course, I've said that includes what you text, what you tweet, and what you post on Facebook. Am I selfish or generous when it comes to money? I mean, all those questions we have to ask ourselves as we have gone through this series. And the question we get asked this morning dealing with this text is this. What is my attitude and action to a wandering person? Do I gossip? Criticize? Or do I seek to restore them in love? And while this passage infers that we pray for those who've lost their way, it also moves us into what James has been calling all along a faith and works mentality, or you might say this, a prayer and works mentality. It's one thing to pray. It's another thing to listen to what God has to say and then move into obeying what God tells us. So let's look at the first principle this morning, the reality of backsliding. James writes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. The word wander is used, actually we get the word planet or orbit. And the idea is a person straying out of orbit. And what would happen if our earth would just tilt one or two degrees on its axis from where it is? It'd be chaos. There'd be earthquakes, floods, the shift in gravity, the earth literally would break up. James is saying, listen, when you choose to wander, and he says you choose that, it just doesn't happen on its own. But you make choices, and we'll look at that in a moment. But when you choose to wander, understand your life, when you wander from the truth, the truth being the word of God, but the truth being Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you will bring and invite chaos into your life. And things will break apart. You become disoriented. 
and things will not be as you expect them to be. Now, I know in our culture, when we become disoriented and life falls apart, we'd like to blame other people. But James is putting his finger on the reality of backsliding. Now, one of the aspects of backsliding we have to deal with is what we call sin or certain behaviors. And so often we pick and choose. And we start saying, well, this is obvious. It's, it's sin. And this is how everybody should think just because I think that way. And yet we have places where Jesus preaches. One was called Sermon on the Mount. And he, he contrasts two different kinds of people. He talked about the good the tree that produces good fruit and the tree that produces poisonous fruit. And he was talking about religious people and he was talking about followers of Jesus. And when you look at the text, you realize both claim to follow the Ten Commandments, but Jesus says, listen, here's how you do it, but here's how, I, here's how you should do it. Both groups prayed, but Jesus says, listen, here's how you do it, You got long prayers and you say a lot of things, but here's how I want you to pray. Both fasted, but again, here's how you do it. You do it to be seen by others. You do it out in front of everybody. It's a display. It's a show. But he says, I want you to fast from the heart. And one group was far away from Christ. They lacked self-awareness. They didn't even see their need to follow Christ. In fact, they thought Christ was the one who had issues. And I just point this out because at times backsliding looks very religious. But they've wandered from the truth. And as Jesus and the writers of the Gospels tell us so often, it's very easy to deceive ourselves. Now the other issue I want to talk about briefly is if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, your issue is your relationship with Christ. Okay? That's where you got to start. And if you have followed Christ, and if you want to follow Christ, then you have to deal with the reality of moving forward or moving backwards. What we get from James is this, that there is no staying the same. There is just no in neutral. There is no It's either you're moving forward in Christ, and if you're not moving forward in Christ, you're moving away from Christ. So that's the reality of backsliding. Now, there is a path to straying and how it happens. And let me suggest these things. The first is, so often what happens in our Christian life is we neglect such a great salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2, First three verses, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape, escape backsliding if we neglect such a great salvation? If you are here last week, you heard four stories of that great salvation. Amen. And so often what happens in our life is when we first accept Christ, we just are so in love and so in tune. But as we move further and further away from that date of birth, we start not realizing what a great and incredible salvation we have. 
What that means is we do not take full advantage of our salvation. There's a story of a farm that was in financial trouble. So one day the chicken and pigs got together saying, what can we do to help save this farm? Chicken said, we know, let's have a breakfast, ham and eggs. The pig said, well, we don't know about that. For you, it's a donation. For us, it's a commitment. (laughs) Neglect means we're happy to make the donation rather than the commitment. But that's the first step of string. We neglect the great salvation we have in Christ. Second, we then become spiritually insensitive. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what happens. You sin. First time you do it, you feel real bad. Feel guilt, shame. Sit there and say, did anybody see me? And that fascinates me because we know that God sees everything. And we're worried about other people seeing it, not God. Now, the next time you sin, you start saying, you know, it's not so bad. And the next time you sin, you say, you know what? This really isn't bad compared. And you start looking at other people. And you say, look at all those other sinners over there. And look how they're ruining their lives. I'm not as bad as them. And then you keep sinning and you dupe yourself into believing it's really not big a deal. In fact, you start saying, well, is this really a sin? And you rationalize and you deceive yourselves. And what's interesting is those people that start walking away, they usually become hypercritical of everybody else. But those people over there, and the author of Hebrews says, listen, man, you got a hard heart. You deceive yourself because you're walking in this path and you're not confessing, asking for forgiveness, and you're not allowing God's spirit to restore your heart. Third step, I think we're to third, is spiritual stubbornness. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For for by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Here's a stage where people then refuse to learn and grow. They start saying, you know what? I got everything I need. I don't have to take that truth and apply it. I'm already in, prayed the prayer. That's all that matters. And their whole life becomes very hedonistic. That means they're just selfish in their approach. It's their own little world and nothing else matters except the way they think. It's about my life, my desires. And we just kind of dig in. Next, what happens when we get into the state? We drift from the fellowship of the saints. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. James talked about not being double-minded. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love good works. Those are good things. Then he says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. You realize we can't stir one another to love and good works if we don't meet together. We can't encourage one another if we don't meet together. 
What so happens in people's lives is they stop going to the body of Christ. They stop hanging out with the body of Christ. Why? Well, when you neglect your relationship with Christ, you will neglect the fellowship with the body of Christ. You become bedside Baptists. <laughs> now you might say, well, I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. Well, okay, you become a mattress Methodist. I don't care. There's all these reasons why you neglect church, sports, family, vacation, and you start saying things like this, and, you know, I, I don't feel part of that church anymore, so I think I'll go elsewhere. And usually end up in a large church because they have no idea whether you are there or not. They can't hold you accountable. Now, I want to be careful in saying all this because I'm not talking about a legalistic mindset. All I'm saying is if we're going to encourage one another, if we're going to stir up love with one another, you have to be in close proximity. Let me use this illustration. We're called the bride of Christ. So he calls the church his bride. We're in a marriage relationship. And what would happen if you came to me and said, Pastor, you need to know I love my wife. But I just really don't want to be around her anymore. And so I decided it's going to be a hotel and a restaurant. I'll sleep there. I'll eat there. But, and you spend all your time out there with other friends, with other people, other situations. What will happen to your marriage? And you might say, well, pastor, I do text her every day. Every week I give her a phone call. We talk online. But the point is, if you don't have presence, your heart will change. Amen? It will grow cold. So Facebook and texting can be nice, but it does not replace face-to-face accountability that we need in the body of Christ. Now here's what I found for me. When I feel like not going the most, now that may surprise you. You say, does Pastor Egg ever feel like not going to church? Amen, I do. When I don't feel like going the most, and that's not even a good sentence, is it? Well, you know what I mean. It's exactly the time that I need the body the most. Here's the next step of backsliding, blatant rebellion. Hebrews 10 verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, note that word deliberately, There's no confession. There's no repentance. We just keep rolling it over. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. It just means we live in an unforgiven state. We don't invite Christ in to to cleanse us and to free us like we celebrate it with communion. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, listen, there are people that know God, but they don't honor him. They don't worship him. He says, they know God, but they don't live with thankfulness for what they know. And they claim to be wise. They claimed, and God says, listen, you're fools. And then it says that God gave them up. And that means there's consequences. He gave them up the desires of their heart, their passions. And he says they have debased minds. And he goes through this horrible list of consequences. But here's the clincher at the very end of that chapter. In verse 32, here's what he says. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They become calloused. They become blatant in their rebellion. Ecclesiastes chapter 9.18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. 
Can't tell you how many people I said, listen, it's my choice. Nobody else's. What I do doesn't impact anybody else. And see, that's the lie. There isn't a single person here who hasn't lived with someone who their blatant rebellion, their refusal to confess and repent, their refusal to follow Christ has an impact just numbers of people. So that's the reality of backsliding. And then James talks about the responsibility to backsliders. And someone brings him back. Restoration. Now, I'm going to share two pet peeves. You know what a pet peeve is? <laughs> Something I probably shouldn't share, but I'm going to anyway. In church world, for whatever reason, we have policies. And in our policies, uh, we have something called church discipline. And that's always concerned me because I watch what we discipline for. And it seems like, we're, number one, we're punitive. We got to make somebody pay. And it's not very restorative. Now, in Scripture, I think we shouldn't have church discipline policies. I think we should have church restoration policies. Amen? And we ask, how can we restore these people? What's the direction? But see, we want to call out certain sins. We want to make people public examples. I knew a couple in Canada that uh, two months before they got married, she got pregnant, and the pastor made them on their wedding day turn around to the audience, confess their sin, and apologize before he would do the ceremony. Now I want to ask the pastor, did you make everybody else stand up that was gossiping about it? <laughs> Weren't controlling their tongue? I've seen public examples made out of certain sins, but I've never seen a public example made out of someone who gossips. And yet, yeah, Kenny's clapping again. <laughs> I'll tell you what, he is in tune this morning. Now, here's my second pet peeve. First, I think we should have church restoration policies and not church discipline policies. Secondly, for some reason, we like the leaders, which means the pastor or the elders or the church council or the church board, whatever you have, we want them to confront the person in their sin and we don't take responsibility for that on ourselves. I mean, here's what we do. After we gossip about it, after we do our investigation and send it to a prayer group, and I'm assuming we send it to a prayer group, here's what most people say. It's none of my business. Now, first, we're talking about sin. Not a rumor, not a tweet or a post. Not something that somebody speculates. We're talking about a known sin according to God. And I use the word according to God because we have our list of sins that are not found in God's word. <laughs> I remember a time I ran a youth camp in Canada and we would take the youth to a place called Crystal Beach Amusement Park. And there's a family that was really upset with me because according to them, good Christians should not attend such places. And they had their list of reasons and made perfect sense of them. And at the very end, they said, well, listen, here's the bottom line. If you go there and someone from the town sees you, you have lost your witness for Jesus. So, Okay. Now, we can say they're kind of weird and strange, but substitute that for anything. Movies, face cards, going to the bar. I mean, your prejudices, we talked about that in James already. What are your prejudices that you have in your mind that you can't let go of and you label other people for? 
Now, I got to finish this story because around a year later, I heard this family's in Florida and they went to some place called Disney. Anybody been there? And when they came home, you know, me, I just had to ask. I went over, visited them, said, listen, you said we can't go to Crystal Beach, but you went to Disney. Yeah, we went. I said, why? They go, well, in Florida, nobody knows us. We can't lose our witness. I said, okay, I'm not even going to, just going to leave and that's it. So back, I'm talking about known sin, not your little personal prejudices. But let me ask you this question when you say it's none of my business. Let's say you had a child. That child was running out into traffic. You saw it happening. They're going to come out between cars. You see a car coming down. And you know, and you can see it in your head, that as soon as they get out there, the car's going to hit them and run them over. Would you stand there and say, huh, none of my business? I think as a parent, you would run, you'd scream, you'd do everything in your power to rescue your child. And if a friend who claims to follow Jesus, and if they're headed down a certain path of destruction, why would you say it's none of my business, or let the pastor do it, or let the church leaders do it? Do you know why you don't do it? you know why we don't do it? Because it's risky. They might not like it. I mean, anybody that's ever done an intervention in the world of addiction knows they don't like it. I mean, sometimes they get mad at us. Sometimes they call us names. I mean, they might post your name and something about you on Facebook, and how could you ever live again, right? <laughs> Worse yet, they might tweet and Twitter about you. There was a couple, and she was having a very public affair, okay? Everybody knew about it. I don't know about clapping on that one. <laughs> Kenny, you're a little out of rhythm on that one. And by the time it got to me, okay, pastors kind of left last to find out. There's a long line of information and gossip going on. Probably some prayer, I hope. But at that point, no one had sat down with her and confronted her and talked about the consequences of such behavior. Now, again, Paint the picture. The whole area knows about it. So I, with a close friend of hers who was also on staff, went. And we went in love. We spoke grace and truth. We talked about outcomes to her marriage, to her kids. And she was angry. And she refused to come to church. And some of her friends who came to the church I pastored, who knew about it, were angry. And they left with her because they didn't want to be part of a church, church that was so judgmental. But my point was this. If the defining mark of the church is love, how can we not seek restoration when someone literally is throwing their life away? Remember what it says in the text? Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word save is the word restore. Cover a multitude of sins in part, we understand that because, you know, if you, if you break a sin here, if you break the chain of addiction here, it is going to save them from a whole lot of sins down the road. Amen? But also, it really talks about what we talked about here this morning of communion. 
I mean, Christ's blood covers our sin. He takes away the guilt. He takes away the legal consequence of that sin. Now, the thing that kind of disturbs us in this passage is, we'll save his soul from death. I mean, what does that mean? Passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, it's really part of what we celebrated this morning. There was sin going on in a religious context. What it was had to do with around communion. People were being selfish and self-seeking. There was this consumer mentality when it came to communion and not an act of worship. And here's what he writes. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of an offering. They weren't told how much to give, but they said, listen, we're going to sell our property and give everything to Jesus. They came in and they took a portion back. They lied. They died on the spot. John talks about a sin that leads to death. But here's the point. If someone continues in a defiant, unrepentant sin, okay? We're talking about someone who just refuses They risk an untimely death. Now we know they risk death in relationships. They risk death in their marriage, in their homes, with their children, with their friends. But they also risk physical death. This is what sin does. So James kind of wraps all this up because he talks about the tongue. He talks about our prejudices. He talks about wisdom. He talks about joy in the midst of trials. And he says, listen, what you guys need to be about is you need to be a spiritual hospital where people come in who are ill. It's a place where the disease is diagnosed and it is removed. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now that's an appropriate clap. <laughs> Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The renewal of the backslider, we, we seek to restore. I mean, we get this. If they're restored, it's stopped. Sin doesn't progress. If they're restored, the sin is forgiven. The guilt's paid for. The shame is removed. But what James has been telling us all through this pattern is that many of us are not where we ought to be. We're AWOL. Our bags are packed in the airport and we're waiting for Jesus. And because of that, it has led to some questionable things in our lives. And he lists the issues. I mean, he has hit us hard down through this passage. Amen? He's hit me hard down through this passage. Okay? If he hasn't hit you, he's hit me hard. And he says, listen, you got to choose joy. Trials will come. But he closes saying this. We are called to care, to help to encourage. We are called to restore each other in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're going to close out. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And during communion mornings, we take something called a fellowship offering. And part of that, I shouldn't say part of that, part of our mission here, part of our ministry here is, yes, we need people restored spiritually. But there are times people need restoration physically. They don't have enough money to 
to pay their hospital bills. They don't have money for rent to heat or cool their place. Sometimes they need a car. And we take an offering for what's called the fellowship fund. And all the money that we collect this morning goes into that. And we have a group of people that manages that for the care and the restoration of people in this church. So as we close this service, we're going to be doing that. But pray with me. Father God, thank you for who you are. And thank you for the way that you restore us. I pray that we may have that same gracious spirit and attitude and courage and confrontation, call it whatever you want, as we see people throw their lives away in known sin. May we come alongside and may we, in grace and truth and love, walk with them. I know so often we're concerned about our reputations, but man, you took hits on that one. You got a whole lot of names called you, including your son of Satan. May we not not be so concerned about our reputation, what people think of us, and may it just be overwhelming that we are just in there for the long haul because we are going to walk with them until they are restored. May we have that kind of mentality, regardless of what everybody else thinks, regardless of what other people say. But thank you, Lord, we can worship you this morning. We pray for wisdom because you ask us to pray for it in dealing with these kinds of situations. And we pray, Lord, that we become a church that seeks the restoration of lives around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we worship.